The move from fee-for-service reimbursement to alternative payment models is increasing the attention paid to care coordination and integration, and that could benefit patients with higher-than-average medical and social needs. But value-based programs could also penalize providers that serve those vulnerable populations. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Karen Joint-Maddox, an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Joint Maddox has written a perspective article about how new payment models could affect care for poor and minority patients. Dr. Joint Maddox, how has fee-for-service reimbursement affected access to care for those vulnerable populations? Has it been thought that alternative payment models would actually lead to better care for them? Potentially. I think anyone who's contemplating success in an alternative payment model or a value-based payment model would naturally want to turn their attention toward their most vulnerable populations because those are the folks for whom there may be modifiable costs. So preventable admissions for heart failure, for example, or preventable emergency department visits. So I think in many ways, the natural tendency under some of these payment models might be to try to actually direct resources toward improving outcomes and costs among some of our most vulnerable populations. In that way, I think value-based and alternative payment models may actually hold good promise for helping institutions to focus on those individuals who may have the highest risk of poor outcomes. So, in fact, in your article, you give examples of some alternative payment programs that have led to improved care for low-income patients and shared savings for the organizations that are treating them. So why have some of those programs been successful but others not? Well, unfortunately, I think the devil can really be in the details. And part of that is how the programs are designed, and part of it is how providers respond to those designs. So in addition to putting forward an incentive to focus on improving care for the most vulnerable, you can imagine that there are a number of perhaps less desirable consequences of putting financial incentives in play. For example, we could see clinicians be less likely to want to take on care for high-risk populations. If you know that you might be penalized if you have a high-risk group, it may be less attractive to uh, put a clinic in an underserved area, for example. We also know that because social determinants of health are powerful predictors of health outcomes, that clinicians may be worried about treating both high-risk medical and high-risk social patients, and those are particularly vulnerable groups when those two things overlap. We could also see a pressure to cut back services, for example, if there's a lot of pressure to control costs. So you can imagine both a potentially positive effect of these programs, and as you mentioned, we've seen that in a few programs, or a potentially negative effect where we'd see folks try to potentially avoid providing care to patients or take on providing care to those patients but then be at high risk for receiving financial penalties. The way that the programs are designed could impact whether or not they have largely beneficial or largely harmful effects, and I think that's where we need a lot more thought and discussion and debate to name the problem and to really start thinking about how we can design value-based payment programs to really leverage them to get people to focus on our most vulnerable patients rather than set up potentially adverse incentives and unintended consequences. You write, for example, that current risk adjustment methods can't reliably distinguish between poor quality care on the one hand and high medical and social risk on the other. Has there been any movement toward refining that risk adjustment to better reflect underlying differences in the patients and their needs? There has, and I think this is an area that will hopefully really start to evolve over the coming years. In many ways, the initial efforts at risk adjustment really just needed to be good enough to help us understand how to do quality improvement. But now that we're putting millions, if not billions, of dollars on the line and moving that money around from provider to provider based on performance, 
really the burden of proof on some of these measures, I think, needs to be a little bit more robust. Then we need to be more certain that we're seeing true quality signals and not just noise if we're going to really put payment on the line. And, And again, as I mentioned, these potentially unintended consequences for patients, which should always be the focus of everything that we do. Now, a lot of the measures that we use were developed in a time where we had worse data and less computing power. So I am optimistic that as we increasingly move toward, for example, electronic health record data or registry data, or even just a better computational ability to handle big amounts of claims data and to think a little bit more deeply about how we might identify things like poor functional status or social vulnerability from those big data sets, that ideally we could use some of that progress both in data and in the analytics used to create these measures to really make the measures reflect quality and not just noise, or, as I think is unfortunately the case in some measures, really not just reflect a burden of risk that we're not adequately accounting for. You describe in your article several potential solutions that could help prevent unnecessary harm to vulnerable populations through these alternative payment models. How feasible would it be for programs to evaluate participants on improvement rather than on achievement, or to reward quality improvement proportionally? I think those are highly feasible. CMS already includes improvement in some of its programs makes it a little bit more complicated, obviously, because you have to have more years of data, and the risk adjustment needs to be a little bit better to be sure that you're not just seeing shifts in populations. But in hospital value-based purchasing, for example, hospitals can earn improvement points. So computationally, and I think even operationally, it is feasible for CMS and other payers to look at improvement over time. It's a little more complex, but I think it's very feasible. Proportional improvement or proportional reward is much trickier, but I think potentially higher impact. So the idea there is that right now we tend to set specific targets for things, so a certain hemoglobin A1C or a certain blood pressure target, and it's easiest to achieve the target by trying to intervene on those people who are already closest to the target. So you can move someone's blood pressure from 145 to 140, or maybe 135 to 130 with new guidelines. But what we really need is for people to focus on the folks whose blood pressures are 180 and bring those down 20 or 30 points, even if you don't quite get to goal. That's immensely clinically important. And in terms of the amount of strokes and heart attacks prevented and in terms of the vulnerability of the population we're treating, that's where we should be incenting people to focus. So focusing on proportional improvement, I think, has a lot of potential for directing resources and attention toward those most needy patients but it means you need good measurements, and you need good measurements over time. There may be some potential with electronic health records to do that, to be able to have more data points and to really track trajectories as opposed to having clinics or hospitals submit sort of point-in-time data. So that, I think, is a little more aspirational, but equally important and potentially even more important as we think about really harnessing these programs to help people focus on the folks who can benefit the most. Finally, what steps can individual providers who are working within existing alternative payment models take to allow them to provide high-quality care for vulnerable populations without losing money? I think one thing that's been really encouraging to me is to see all the innovation that's happening around the country in terms of thinking about addressing social determinants themselves. So we're moving beyond a debate of whether or not social determinants matter and instead toward a debate around how we can, as a medical community, start to integrate attention to those determinants into our medical care. And I think that's really encouraging because so much of health takes place outside the hospital that trying to find ways to bring the community together and bring patients together and bring them to the table 
and really think about how we can intervene in making them healthier represents a huge step forward. That's been tough for hospitals to do. Many of our payment programs have focused on hospitals, and hospitals may not be the best partners in thinking about how to keep people out of a hospital. But as we think more about moving toward accountable care, toward bundling, toward outpatient, toward things that really link across settings and try to build a care continuum around patients, I really think this increasing effort to think about social determinants and think how can we support patients to be able to take their medications, to be able to attend clinic visits? Do we need to provide transportation? Do we need health coaching? What can we do to make patients have better access to care and better access to health? That's the kind of thing that I really see the potential for value-based payment to incent if we can continue to focus on improving care for those populations and not disincenting care for those populations. And I think one really important job for the clinical community, of which I feel very lucky to count myself, is to be a voice for the patients and to say these payment programs ultimately have to benefit our clinical care. They've got to make our patients better. It can't just be about moving money around. And if we can leverage these programs to help clinicians focus on the patients who need it most, that's what we'll do. If we design programs without thinking about that, I'm worried that we could actually divert resources and attention away from the neediest patients, which ultimately isn't what we're all about as clinicians or even as just members of an increasingly complex society. So I think there's a ton of potential here, and the more voice that the clinical community can have in policy development, the better I think we'll be and the closer we'll be toward the ideal of really starting to change care paradigms for these vulnerable populations. Thank you, Dr. Joint Maddox.